We continue in the first epistle of Peter, the second chapter, and the closing verses of that chapter. And this evening, focus on verses 24 and 25. They read as follows. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The Apostle Peter, in this first of his two letters, uh, deals with suffering in relation to Christian people. And he writes in order to encourage them with regard to the degree of suffering that they were experiencing at the time, and also a more severe trial that was about to befall them. And he does it by pointing out to them that they are not to think it strange to be surprised that that is so. And this morning we noted two reasons why that strangeness is really only apparent. It has an explanation. And the explanation is that suffering for the Christian comes at the hands of a world that does not know God. It is a world marked by ignorance of him and consequent perversity and folly, pursuing its own ways and its own ideas. But now he goes beyond that. I'm sorry, the second reason is that he indicates that this is what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who came to earth and did the best, and yet suffered the most. And so it should not be surprising that Christians, whose calling it is to do what is good, that they should suffer too, because they are one with him. And the kind of people that they've now become and the way in which they live and what they stand for and what they speak about and even the way in which they love others creates a stir, makes a cutting edge in a world that is self-centered, self-confident, believing in its own ideas and ways. But he now goes beyond that to point out to them that though they share in Christ's sufferings 
in that way. There are sufferings that Jesus Christ endured in which they do not participate but by way of receiving their benefits. And that is what we look at this evening, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it, that Peter should be writing about suffering at all. Cast your mind back to what we are told about him in the Gospels, and both with regard to Jesus Christ, whom he was following, and also with regard to himself. There was no place for suffering in his thinking. At Caesarea Philippi, having confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he protested violently the moment that Jesus said that he was going to suffer and be killed. Then in the Garden of Gethsemane, when uh, the soldiers came from uh, the high priest and the temple, uh, he drew a sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear, reacting uh, to the threat of danger and peril. And on both counts, on both occasions, uh, he was reproved vigorously by the Lord because suffering was part and parcel of what was involved in Jesus Christ being God's Messiah, his Christ, and also for those who follow him. But here we have something quite different in this letter and in these verses in particular. He majors on the subject. He even tells those he's writing to not to resist suffering, but to rejoice in suffering. And in addition to that, he, with wonder and adoration, exults in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. His problem, you see, was that he, being a Jew, misunderstood the Old Testament. Uh, he conceived of it as his contemporaries and fellow nationals did, and still some do, conceived of it as an earthly kingdom that the Messiah had come to inaugurate, expelling the occupying power of Rome and setting up some territorial, glorious, earthly realm, reminiscent of the days of King David and Solomon. Here in these verses that are before us, you find something very striking and surprising. It's this, that he refers on five in five separate ways to Isaiah 53. You can look them up yourself. The um, references will point them out to you. The most graphic, of course, is there in verse 22, 
who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Verbatim quotation from Isaiah 53. Other references and then, he bore our sins when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Isaiah was given to predict and now Peter understands it. And here he is quoting it and the many benefits that flow from the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that he says to them is what we looked at this morning. Namely, you follow his steps. This is the way the master went. Should not the servant tread it still? He was like a, a step maker. The epistle to the Hebrews calls him a pioneer. Someone who, or a group of men who went on ahead of the army, plotting a course. If someone is climbing a mountain, it's good to have steps cut. And particularly if the mountain is icy, if someone has been there before and has actually cut steps to enable you to ascend to the summit, or if it's a trackless waste through a jungle or a desert, someone who has gone before, and someone who has gone before, for all who trust in him has left in the gospel records, footmarks, We've been singing about them. Oh, let me see thy footmarks, and in them plant my own. He's the example. He's the pattern in the midst of every and any kind of suffering that comes to us in the will of God as we seek to do good for his glory and for the benefit of fellow human beings. As sufferings come to us, remember the sufferer. Remember the one who has gone before and put your footmarks in his steps. In particular, don't retaliate. Don't maintain your own defense. You commit all to him, whatever may be involved. It's safe with him. Jesus Christ did that. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, he said. So must we. We are never likely to fail or fall looking to him because he will sustain and support. That's the first thing that he says there in verse 21. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example or a pattern that we should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. There's a day coming when everything will be put to rights. We are not to avenge ourselves, God is just and God is true. And those who serve him, trusting in his son, though they suffer now at the hands of those who oppose him, will be given rest when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, whereas those who have given them trouble, 
will receive tribulation at his hand. There's a great day of vindication ahead. Everything will be put to rights and God will be glorified and humbly we will share in being conformed to the likeness of his incarnate son. But that's not all. Sadly, over the last decades in our land, it has been presented as if it were all. By its being reduced to an attempt to follow Jesus on the part of those who do not believe in him. An attempt to be like him. The Sermon on the Mount, the Ethical Code and so on. And we are seeing the effects of that form, um, that distortion of Christian truth that did not face up to the fact that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And there's no possibility of following in his steps unless, as he says here, we've been healed by his stripes. That's what we now go on to. Don't try to be a Christian. Believe in Christ and you will become one. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. We were like sheep going astray, but have returned unto the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus Christ is not merely the step maker. He's the sin bearer and the soul keeper. And so you and I who trust in him, come what may in this world, are safe and secure in him. Let's begin with this word soul. He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, Peter writes. What is a soul? It's a word we often use. How do you think of it? How do you understand it? Probably we think of it as the other part of us beside our bodies. The soul being the immaterial, the, the, the non-physical part of our personhood. But it's not like that. That's how the Greeks thought. The Hebrews and the Old Testament teaches that the soul is not part of us, it's all of us. At the beginning of creation, when 
God made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, a living being. The soul is the being. It is what you and I are in our totality, not part of us, but all of us. So that Peter using it here, later on he talks about eight souls being saved in the ark, eight persons, he means. The soul is the person. It's you and me in the totality of our personhood. in the hands of Jesus Christ who bore our sins and who keeps us, guards and guides us as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. What a wonderful picture is that. What comfort and strength. But you know, it all becomes actual because He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Peter's been casting his net far and wide, doesn't he? He talks about sufferings in terms of verbal abuse. Talks about it in terms of physical pressure. But here he narrows his focus down to something particular specific, and he is emphatic about it, and he speaks in exclusive terms, who his own self, not him and anyone else, not him and you and me, He's spoken about our sharing in his sufferings, but now that's excluded. This is something particular and specific to which we make no contribution at all but the sins that he bore. He himself bore our sins in his own body. Not merely a reference to him himself, but to a particular place or occasion added to that. This is, this is time-specific. There was a time, there was a place when sins were born and sinners were saved. And Jesus was the only one who did it. You believe that? So there's nothing that we can do, nothing that we are to try to do. But what is faith? It's empty hands coming to him to receive What he has done, it goes against the grain, doesn't it? There's something in us that believes we're important and significant. Believes that we're not as bad as we really are. Certainly not so helpless and hopeless as to need 
a death to save us. But that is what alone deals with our problem. Because it deals with sin. His own self. His own body. On the tree. Throughout his life he'd endured suffering as we've seen. And that was at the hands of sinners. Religious, very religious sinners. And in different Gentile sinners like Pilate. But now he's suffering not because of those sinners that opposed him. He's suffering for sins. And we're given a clue as to what is involved in that. It had a reference to a tree. We think of the cross, Roman form of execution. Peter doesn't use the word for cross. He uses the word for tree, as he does in his preaching in the gospel, in the book of Acts. Why? Again, he's going back to the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What was distinctive, you see, about the death of Jesus in contrast to that impenitent thief and in contrast to the penitent, pardoned thief is that here on that middle cross was someone who bore God's curse. That's where it fell. And he knew it. And he felt it. And he endured it. And he bore it. Why should a holy, just God curse his holy, just son. And the answer is sin. Your sin, my sin. And it the guilt and guilt, you remember, is not a feeling. We can feel guilty when we're not. Guilt is a state. Guilt is being regarded by the law, the lawgiver, as having challenged his majesty, defied his precepts, rejected everything about him. That makes us guilty in his sight. And what happened to Jesus was this insofar as we can say anything about it. That God made him to be sin who knew no sin. God treated him 
as a sinner, though he was not a sinner. He bore our guilt. He took our place. He paid our debt. He suffered our death. He experienced our hell. In that three hours of darkness from noonday until three o'clock on the first Good Friday afternoon, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. And he knew it. He knew what it was for that darkness that was external to become internal. He knew what it was no longer to see the face of the Father whom he knew loved him and who he loved. The one whose will he was doing by being on the cross, by all the laws, he should not have been treated by like that. <laughs> but it's a gospel, you see. It's good news, it's grace. It's that because God so loved the world, fallen mankind, because he so loved sinners, that he treated his son as they should be treated, in order that he might deal with their sin, their death through sin, and that they might live to righteousness through his perfect obedience throughout his life and then climactically in those hours of God-forsakenness on the cross who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree that's what he did. That's what the Father did. He did it for you and me. He is the sin bearer. And therefore, by his stripes, and there in that mad, horrid, almost non-human body you see what your sin deserves there's our sin hanged up on a cross you see its effects on him that would be its effects on you and me not for 180 minutes but for all eternity And he stepped in.
at his father's behest in order to take your place and mine and bear our sins and by his sufferings to heal us from them. That most terrible blight and disease and condition of all sin that affects the mind, affects the emotions, twists and dominates the will, corrupts the affections, makes us hardly human in comparison with what Adam was before the fall. Isn't that a reason for returning to him? And beginning to put your footsteps in his footprints and to follow in his steps. He's the sin bearer and healer. But there's something even more. He's the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. He's the one who in spite of our waywardness and proneness to err and wander, he's the one who gathers us. Even, you remember Peter said, though they all forsake you, I'll follow you, I'll never leave you. He did. But he was regathered. There was a shepherd who remembered Peter's soul and called him back to himself and kept and led and fed. Remember Psalm 23? Was Peter thinking of this? Jesus said, you shall all be scattered like sheep on the eve of his crucifixion, but then regathered and made them his own. The shepherd and the overseer, the one who will lead and feed with heavenly food and sustenance. That's what this is. By the Holy Spirit's presence and ministry, he will bring Jesus Christ's healing, restoring, strengthening power to our spirits as we eat and drink in faith. Believing on him, he will nourish us, he will sustain us. He will guard us against any kind of foe and adversary. Our souls are safe, they're in the hands of the shepherd. And we are to live under his oversight. We are his charge, but he is our Lord. And we walk in his steps, trusting in him and asking him, to keep us till the river rolls its waters at her feet, bear us safely over. He's the sin bearer, and he's also the shepherd and overseer of our souls. There's none like, there's no one else, his own self. Who else? Ask yourself this question and answer it before God. Who 
can do for me, a sinner, what Jesus Christ alone can do. There's nobody. So look to him alone. Follow his steps. Be grateful for his stripes. And commit your souls to him as a faithful shepherd and overseer. Amen.